to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medefend. So this episode is the second half of a two-part conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. As we shared last time, Dr. Thompson is an MD neuroscientist and also practicing psychologist. And he's the author of a number of truly remarkable books, including Anatomy of the Soul. When we understand the science of our bodies and nutrition and exercise, we gain valuable clues for how to participate with God in the work of physical health and healing. And in the same way, when we understand the science of our brains and, and how our minds work and grow, we gain all kinds of clues for how we can participate with God in the work of emotional and spiritual healing and health, what the Bible calls the renewing of our minds. And on one level, you know, this can be really brainy stuff. But on the other, it's most of all about small daily choices that help us slowly change and grow into the people we want to be, more patient and peaceful and giving, most of all, more like Jesus. And the truth is, I don't think there's anything more valuable on earth than that kind of change. Because when we change inside, it changes the rest of our life too. So, let's plunge back into the conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. We remember things that we sense and image and feel far more easily and powerfully than what we think. Which is why, you know, we remember sermons that include great stories. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're just going to exegete a text and you're going to give me lots of, like, linear, logical thought processes, like, um, it's going to be hard for me to remember that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be hard for me to take that in and make that part of my life. But give me a story and I'll remember it forever. Give me music, give me art, give me other things that my right hemisphere can attach to that will enable me to fix my thought, to regulate my thought, then that's going to be different. So we encourage people that we want you to make part of your day be to include an intentional encounter with beauty, an intentional encounter with beauty of some kind. I have a friend who uh, my, my, my friend Andy Crouch has, has said, you know, he He's written this marvelous book called The TechWise Family. Yeah, and we, we had him on the program a, a few times back, and it was great, right. great conversation. So, yeah. you know, and, and so Andy's, Andy said this, uh, Andy, Andy has said this publicly, so I can say that, you know, he, uh, he m when he's able to, most days, before he does anything, before he looks at anything on a screen in the day, he wants to step outside of his house, go outside into his neighborhood, and even if it means going for a few pace walk up or down his sidewalk, and put his hand on a tree or breathe in the air uh, as a way to allow himself to take in the beauty of what he senses and sees mm -hmm. and as also as a viscerally felt sensed reminder that real life is to be found under your feet and banging your elbow up against and as you put your hand on the bark of the tree, that's far more real than what you think you're going to see when you walk in the house and pick up your phone. Mm -hmm. uh, we desperately need intentional encounters with beauty as a way for us to be transformed because so much of what is competing for our souls does not come to us first and foremost 
through you know logical and linear argument. It comes to us through what we sense and image and feel. Mm. Yes. So we've talked about several different ways of essentially choosing to direct our attention um, towards things that will change us into the people we desire to become. Um, you talked about that that five minutes of silence in the morning and midday and the evening. We talked about Andy's practice of uh, spending time in nature. And, and so in that, we're, we're turning the spotlight of our mind towards God's creation and we're receiving the gifts that, that Scripture tells us are, are there, that, that, that self-revelation, that his glory, his divine attributes are revealed in the things that are made. Um, and then earlier we talked about the practice of solitude, of actually stepping away at a more extended period of time um, into uh, quiet, into reflection. So let's let's go back to that. And and this would feel very unnatural, I think, to many, just about any modern. Um, our lives are so full of noise and activity that I, I know for myself, Kurt, when I first began to, tr to, to, to try to do that, <laughs> I felt like a smoker who didn't have a cigarette. Oh you know, I felt that itchiness <laughs> and, you know, that I, that I yes. was reaching for my phone like I imagine mm. a smoker would reach for their cigarettes, needing that calming effect of distraction. Yes. So uh, d describe when, when you're uh, telling someone about solitude and encouraging them to step in that direction and explore it, what kind of advice do you give them on the front end? Um, I, it's, it's a great question. I, um, I'm reminded initially of uh, the book um, and the life of Gerald May, who wrote the book Addiction and Grace, which some of your readers may be familiar with. And in this uh, really profoundly insightful and helpful little piece, uh, May, uh, on the very first page, the book says, look, we're all addicts. He was a psychiatrist who worked with addicts, but he worked with a wide range of folks before he went on to found uh, uh, an institute for spiritual formation here in the D.C. area. And he said, look, we're all addicts. It's just a matter of, like, making sure that we've named the things to which we are addicted. And they don't have to be substances, right? They can be relationships. They can be uh, certain activity. They can be things that we often think are of as good. We can be addicted to exercise. We can, he said, you know, we can even be addicted to particular ways in which we believe the image of God must be. So, you know, I have a particular way of experiencing God, and that experience is really good for me. And uh, But, you know, it's, it's odd how God refuses to be held in a bottle, to be kept in a box, and just about the time we find ourselves clutching on to any of those addictions, God's going to find a way to slip through our fingers as a way to um, expand our capacity for faith, expand our capacity for relationship. And so May writes about addiction. And so one of the things that I, I, I say to folks, like if we're going to practice solitude, the first thing we have to recognize is that we're all addicts. And that if you haven't done that, the entry into that practice is going to feel much like an addict. Just like you said, you're going to feel the withdrawal effects. So first of all, don't be surprised. The withdrawal effects are hard, but they are not insurmountable. They are doable. Like, we can do this. And every one of us, every we, each one of us as addicts is going to go through this. So that's one thing I say. Like, don't be worried about the fact that this is going to feel like it's hard to do. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Here's the second thing, and that is that um, we talk about solitude, but before we even go there, we have to rec recognize that human beings are made to live rhythmically. Um, 
from the very beginning, right? Uh, labor and delivery, right? When a, when a mother's about to give birth, like there's a contraction and then it releases. And there's a contraction, really. There's this rhythmic movement until the baby comes into the world. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the baby comes into the world, all of those air pressure gradients change and the lungs fill. And now we have another rhythm. It's the rhythm of breathing, mm-hmm. in and out, in and out. We have a cardiac rhythm, in and out, in and out. And by the time that baby moves to toddlerhood, and it starts to walk, eventually they're gonna develop a gait, and the gait is gonna have a certain rhythm to it. When you walk, your gait looks pretty much like none others except maybe your dad's. There's gonna be this rhythm that we live. And so there is the rhythm of the movement of God in the Garden of Eden, where he was walking in the cool of the day. If he's walking, means he's got a rhythm to it. He comes and he goes. He never leaves us alone, but he comes and he goes. Solitude is always something that happens in rhythm with community. It's never something that we talk about in isolation. Mm, mm-hmm. So we want to talk about solitude. What are these practices? This practice of I can be, I can have moments of solitude, in fact, in the middle of my office time for 60 seconds. In fact, we can practice solitude even in short moments, even in the presence of other people. This practice can begin. There, there are a number of different books. You mentioned Dallas Willard, uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline. There are others who um, are well-known writers who can give people instructions about what are these disciplines that can help us live into this place of solitude where, again, back to the question of pace, it means the first thing I'm going to need to do is to carve out time for this. And that time doesn't have to be for three hours every day, but it's probably going to be at least 30 minutes. You're probably going to need at least that much time for your brain, body, mind connection to do the work that it needs to do when it engages in, for instance, centering prayer, when it uh, listens to uh, three to five minutes of music that will be really helpful and important, worship music for you to listen to. Put your earbuds in and allow yourself to be, that, that, as I say, like it's really good for us to put ourselves in the oncoming path of beauty. Hmm. That's what we want to do. We're going to put ourselves in the oncoming path of beauty. Listening to music is a way to do that. And then prayer, and then, and, and then uh, the reading of scripture, or, or, other, or other books that are really helpful and useful for formation. And then I think, you know, it's, it's funny, uh, keyboards have become you know, so ubiquitous that children now increasingly they're not taught how to write in script let alone knowing how to print right so it's becoming increasingly difficult for us to know literally how to write Mm. but the act of journaling is a I think a significant part of what it can mean to be in solitude to take the things that are banging around in my head and put them in some kind of order even if the sentences themselves don't all, they're not all neat and tidy and, you know, and, I'm, and we may not even be looking for war and peace. We don't have to write down everything. But writing, for instance, slows the pace down, right? And I tell people, if you're going to keep a journal, I don't want you to keyboard it. I don't want you to be on your computer. I want you to get real pen, real paper. I want you to be something that you can feel, something that takes longer for you to put on paper because it gives your brain time to catch up with your emotion and thinking processes, mm. oh. giving there the opportunity on paper for integration to take place in a way that doesn't happen quite as fully when you're trying to keyboard the same thing because you can keyboard so much more quickly. 
that writing process can be something then that I want to say, like, go back and read it. Keeping a gratitude journal. Every day, write three things that are new that you can be grateful for. Make them, and I don't mean just like, I'm, I'm grateful for, for health. Like, I don't know what that means, right? But like, I'm grateful that my wife uh, really look, did the laundry today. Like, those are, you know, those kinds of things are all done in a space and time of solitude. So solitude isn't just this kind of amorphous thing. Like, well, I'm going to go be in solitude. Solitude, mm-hmm. like, I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Like, I need that space in order to do these things mm-hmm. in order to prepare me then to rhythmically move back into community. I don't do solitude for the sake of solitude. I do solitude for the sake of it being part of the rhythm about being in community. And community can mean at least a couple things. One, I'm back in the world of doing my work and my life, right? I'm at work, I'm with my family, I'm with so forth and so on. But I'm also referring to the necessary element of uh, what we call confessional communities. Those communities in which uh, I'm meeting on a regular basis uh, whose intention it is for me to reveal myself and for them to reveal themselves, where nothing that is true about me is not uh, known to them. Like, I'm going to be an open slate to everything so that um, it's not just about people keeping me accountable. It's about people um, giving me the opportunity to be loved, even in the middle of all of my awareness of my own brokenness, my own shame, and so forth and so on. Solitude prepares me for that kind of communal engagement Mm. That then, of course, is going to invite me back into solitude to do more work with what I discover in that community, and the rhythm continues. Mm. It, it sounds like a huge aspect of what solitude is all about is the word attention. It's mm-hmm. it's a time to get away from all that distracts, the noise, the activity, the technology, and then be able to choose in a way that we normally can't amidst daily life what we want to attend to. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. And I, th- I, th- I think that, um, again, part of, part of our challenge is that, uh, you know, our life has now become so full that even practicing solitude just becomes one more thing on the list of things I have to do. Mm-hmm. As opposed to recognizing that uh, in many respects we would say, no, it is out of this rhythm of solitude and community, it is out of that which grows everything else. Again, uh, solitude is uh, an extension of Sabbath. It is an extension, back again referring to John Walton's work, is an extension of our acknowledging that because the king is on the throne, because the king rests, because he is in charge, everything is okay. And Julian of Norwich comes forward and says, all will be well. All will be well, and all will be well. And we might think that's Pollyannish. We look around and we think, like, my goodness, I look at, I look at the paper, I hear, I look, everywhere I look, like, there's nothing well. And I would suggest that we say there's nothing well, not just because of what we look at, but because of how we look at it. If I'm practicing solitude and community in this way, it doesn't just change what I see, it changes how I envision. And that, I think, to your point, begins with what am I paying attention to? 
which of course requires time for me to practice attuning to that which I want to become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most definitely. And I, you know, I know for myself through through most of my life, I have had a time each morning, you know, kind of the the, the what Christians call their devotions, and and mm. you know, while there's been times where I've kind of um, looked looked on that with uh, you know some. Ah, that was, you know, that's just christian easy. But but I, I realize now, you know, as, as we're talking, um, that that time of pause, of quiet, of attending to things that are of eternal value in Scripture, in worship and prayer, that there is an immense value to our, the health of our souls and to the health of our bodies and lives. So there's that's not to be dismissed. Um, but there's this other idea that I hadn't grown up with of extended periods of solitude that, that mm-hmm. allow for something more than you can do in, you know, 20, 30 minutes in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been something I've, I've more discovered as an adult that, right. that uh, through, through Dallas Willard and, mm-hmm. and others, this idea of, of stepping away for a 24-hour period or perhaps longer. Right. Um, and my, my wife, Rachel, and I now try to give each other that gift every six months, say, mm-hmm. Uh, honey, you know, I want you, I want this for you, and so get this on the calendar. Because if you're just trying to do it, at, you know, spur of the moment, it's almost never going to happen. Right. Um, get it on the calendar two, three, four months from now, and find whether it's a retreat center or someone's cabin or an empty house or some place where you can be alone and do the things that that uh, we've just been talking about here. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's uh, you know if you read the go- I, I read it in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I I think I'm. I'm uh, I, I could be wrong here, but it, it, from what I recall, I see it more there than I see it in the other Gospels. Uh, the frequency with which you uh, read Luke recounting that Jesus was up early and up late, mm. going off somewhere mm-hmm. where nobody was with him, mm-hmm. and uh, to, to do to do the work yeah. of yeah. getting ready for or do the work of having of what you know of taking care of what it's just happened today or getting ready for today, and I think it's a really powerful model for. Um, you know, a- acknowledging, you know, as Scott Peck said back in 1978 when, you know, the opening sentence of his landmark book, The Road Less Traveled, uh, life is difficult and nobody is as well as they seem. And um, uh, and I'm, I'm not as well as I seem because, you know, I, uh, underneath what might look like I'm being okay, is like all this frenetic anxiety, distress about you know, what am I not going to do well enough in the next 24 hours? And uh, the ease with which I live in that space of anxiety um, is, you know, going to be directly related and influenced by whether or not I'm actually allowing myself, as again, as the psalmist says, to return to my rest on a regular basis, to return to that rest for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you to be reminded of the bounty that is before us, uh, the bounty with which we live, this notion that Paul writes about, these, this, the spiritual gifts that have been given to us in overabundance in Christ Jesus. You know, we can read that passage and think like, that's nice, like I have, n- I have no idea what that means. And I wanna suggest that part of why we don't know what that means is because we think we could just, we can just like, somehow somebody can, you know, download it to us. And if we get the information, something that we can read in 30 seconds on a, on a, you know, on a Twitter account, that somehow, oh, now I know, and now I can move on. When no, 
what that's really like, that the bounty is is not going to be something that can be uh, you know just magically given to us. No, it's that whole notion of like how long does it take Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel? You know, to, if you, if you go to the Sistine Chapel, if you if you really want to take it all in, like you'll never leave because it, it's just too overwhelming, right? If if you go to look at one of Mark Rothko's paintings in the National Gallery. You know, you can't walk in and just look at it in five minutes and somehow, like, take it home with you. Like, you have to sit with that to let it move you, to let yourself be moved by it, to become aware of all of these gifts that we've been given in Christ um, is not just a matter of, like, assenting to that as a fact and then somehow magically just live it out. Like, we must allow it to be appropriated to us. As I say, like, you must ingest digest and metabolize these things because that is the way that we have been made to take these things in and allow them to become part of our life. Mm. They don't happen as a flash in the pan. I mean, my goodness, Paul has his experience on the Damascus Road and then spends the next several years just trying to get ready to do what he needs to do with what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Like me, I'm thinking like, I had that thing happen on the road. I'm like, let's go. I'm like, I'm just go find Ananias, get my site mm-hmm. back, and, and yeah. let's go. Give me two days to make a strategic plan, and then I'm out there. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's help a person who's saying, okay, I am resonating with this. I, I sense in my own soul this distractedness, this splinteredness that you're describing as a result of both overscheduled activity as well as technology invading my life. So I, I see that as a core problem. I, I desire to uh, take greater decision in my attention, to, to, mm-hmm. to direct my thoughts. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so then I, as a result of that, I see that these moments, these times of solitude, of, of a rhythm of stepping away from activity are going to be vital. And they, they want to do that in the way that you've described the, the five-minute blocks at certain times in the day or perhaps in a morning devotion in a more traditional sense, but to do that in a regular daily rhythm. But then this this idea of, of a more extended solitude. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking of, of planning this. This is something actually the Christian Alliance for Orphans team, I encourage each member of the team to do uh, twice a year. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we, of course, mm-hmm. generally it's do beautiful. it on the, on a weekend day. But sometimes, you know, if if life is such that they can't do that, their family responsibilities, then, then we give them a, a weekday to do that because we believe that that is so vital to their capacity to mm-hmm. serve mm-hmm. well and with wisdom and love and grace. Um, so, so let's say one of them is planning their next time away. Mm-hmm. They've put it on the calendar for, you know, three months from now. And they've uh, a friend has loaned them a, a cottage, and now they're they're making a plan for that day. How how would you mm-hmm. encourage them to think about that? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, first of all, the fact that I, I, can I just say like the fact that you're um, actively encouraging your folks at KFO to do this is just like it's just it's a beautiful thing. Like I, I mean, I'm just I just want to say well done. Like it, because the this this kind of a you know we, we as we, we we in our in our practice here we in our, our shop we we tell our clinicians we can't give people what we don't have and uh, we need space to receive mm-hmm. in order for us to give yes. out of that abundance and so I just want to say like I'm really impressed and really glad to hear that that's happening for you all so well done mm. that's great thank you. Um, 
the fact that you are being um, uh, intentional about this, uh, I would suggest then is also the first step, that it's important for someone who's going to do this to be intentional about it. Yep, it's on the calendar for three months from now, but I don't want to start thinking about it like on my way to it on the day that I'm going to it. I also want to, with intention, think about what I want to do. And your listeners can hear me give you some suggestions. They go, okay, I'll do that. Um, but we don't think about those suggestions again until like the night before we're going. I would say the first thing uh, that's helpful to do is to, um, uh, in the run-up to your day of solitude, uh, take 30 seconds out of, your, out of your week or 10 days before that and just be mindful and be, uh, be looking forward to that and really asking God to open your awareness even before you get there, open your awareness to what he wants to do with you there mm -hmm. and to, not just your awareness – but to ask him to enable you to be open to what he's going to have for you there. Because, you know, we come to these places and we discover, we think, well, this solitude, this is going to be awesome. And we get there and we discover this is boring as heck. Mm -hmm. Or and we, we feel antsy and we, we, yeah. Yeah, need stimulation or, yeah. Right. Yeah. The first, some, oftentimes the first thing that we experience is discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the thing we, we tell uh, patients. When um, physicians prescribe medication, uh, patients are far more likely to take the medication um, if the physicians warn them about side effects ahead of time, even if they have them. But if they have the side effects and the, and the physician has not warned them of the side effects, they're much less likely to take the medication. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to know that this solitude may also include some distress, mm -hmm. which is why it's helpful for us to be alert and attuned in preparation going in. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing I would say in preparation for it is um, uh, I, I would invite your, your listeners not to expect too much. Mm -hmm. That um, solitude is not intended to do something uh, in and of itself on that one day. It is to be something that we begin to practice. So again, there's going to be a rhythm. I'm going to do this every six months. And it's going to be what happens to me in solitude over time that's going to be significant not just what happened to me in solitude on that one particular Saturday when I went. Mm -hmm. Now, that may be the case, mm -hmm. but all that is to say is that when we're first starting this, we're thinking like, oh my gosh, like they've, you know, Jed has said like, I got to do this, this is important. Like, so we kind of freight that ahead of time with a lot of expectation and uh, anticipation. And if it's not everything that we want it to be, even if we don't know what that is, sometimes that can be disappointing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, um, go first of all, without having great expectations that something large is going to happen, as much as you're going uh, with, the, with the intention of meeting God in a way and space that you just simply haven't had the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. I think another thing in preparation then becomes that very issue um, uh, the, of, of how we're going to meet God. Uh, some of our... Uh, we might say our withdrawal effects are going to happen when we first get there. I would say in preparation, um, if at all possible, unless it's absolutely necessary uh, for you to uh, be in electronic contact with someone, I would say go prepared not to be in contact with anybody via any kind of electric means, right? Mm -hmm. So, absolutely. Um, you know, if you're someone who has to be in touch with somebody, right, maybe, but the reality is, Jed, there's nobody who actually needs to do that. Not even the president. Mm 
right? Because like, what are we going to do in, in one day? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm. So I, I would say go planning on being disconnected. Yeah, yeah, and and I would affirm in that and add to it. Just trying not to use screens at all, even for reading scripture, even if of that's course. the normal way, just because there's something about looking at that screen that stimulates, for me at least, parts of the mind that are not places of peace and calm and the, 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 the quieting of mm-hmm. the soul, right? Mm-hmm. So just completely avoiding screen, if at all possible. Right. Um, there are resources out there that can, you know, and I, and I know it, it, around here in Northern Virginia, there are a couple of places where, where I go, like I'll, I'll, there's one place that I'll go and... Uh, there's a, a person who who runs the, the the retreat center, and I'll I'll have them schedule for me. I was like, I'd like for you to develop a get, get me a schedule ready for mm-hmm. the day. Just mm-hmm. some things, not that uh, not that he has to be involved in it, but just give me a rhythm, give me uh, mm-hmm. an outline that will help me do a number of things. A, it's going to be important for me to have some time for immersed silence. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be silent. Well, how do, what do I mean, be silent? Well, some of that's going to be silence at like physical rest. So I'm going to do some silent breathing, some centering prayer sounds, and there's things that we can read about how to do that. But that silence can also be practiced in movement, uh, planning on having part of your day to include uh, physical exploration mm-hmm. of the place where you're going to be. Hike. Right. Going for a walk, going for a hike, being in, again, being in spaces of natural physical beauty, and then reflecting on those elements of natural physical beauty. So every time that we, in solitude, every time we do something, if I read scripture, if I have a time of silence, then allow for there to be some time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, where you give yourself the opportunity to write what your reflections are that come to you. Not that those write, not not that you have to like figure out whatever, you know, whatever the big meaning was at that moment. But again, there is this rhythm that's taking place even within that day of solitude. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be silent, and then I might write something. I'm going to go for a walk, and then I might write something. Um, I'm going to then do some reading of Scripture, and then I might write something. And then I'm going to I'm going to take a couple of uh, you know it doesn't even have to be spiritual literature you you know you don't have to take uh, Bernard of Clairvaux with you 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 can uh, and 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 all that we we would suggest would be good things but you can also take. Uh, you can say, I'm, I'm going to take a novel with me. I'm going to take a, a piece of good literature, not just anything, but good literature that I'm going to read uh, on which my soul can feast. And I'm going, to, I'm going to read for an hour, and then I'm going to do some writing again. And so that rhythmic movement, back and forth and back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes we tell people, uh, sometimes you get into the afternoon and you're feeling really sleepy, but my gosh, I only have a day of solitude. I need to get the most... You know, you take a nap, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's okay yeah. to yeah. do that as well. Well, that's a great way to start start the time, oh, right? When you arrive, course. just if it's in the afternoon, take a nap or or get a really good night's sleep. You know, don't just get eight hours; get nine, ten hours. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think um, I, again. I think you know we can we, we can um, we we can frame out like what what would it, what would a day of solitude look like that would be effective. I think um, as important uh, 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 as important an issue as that is. It is our um, a recognizing that we are beginning a practice, right? Mm. Um, it's not like, well, what do I do in my hour of practicing my piano, right? That's important, but like I'm practicing my piano an hour every day because of what I'm doing over the long haul mm. with the entire collection of my practices yeah. together, yeah. the entire collection of my days of solitude together. And I will say I want to come back to uh, 
the fact that you, with intention, encourage people to do this. Um, one of the beautiful things that we find uh, about things as simple as um, these three to five minute um, silences that we begin our groups with, it's one thing for a person to do that work by themselves. It's a whole different experience when they're in a room with other people who are doing it together. Mm. Because even in the silence and solitude of my own mind, to be doing it with someone else in the room only strengthens the effect of the solitude practice that's taking place in the privacy of their own mind, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I'm simply saying that when you send your folks out with encouragement to go do these days of solitude, they know they're not going by themselves. They know that they're going and like like they're in your mind and you're in theirs. Mm -hmm. like yes. We know that Elizabeth is going today for her day of solitude. She knows that we know. Mm -hmm. There is something deeply connecting about this uh, that is, uh, again, it's not just a matter of like what happens, like our, our what happens when we as individuals do this, but what happens when we as a body of believers are doing this together. And by that, I don't mean that we all go on the same day, but that we know that we are all making this a practice. Uh, you know, the, the, the biblical narrative is a story of God's encounter with his people. It's not a story of God's encounter, you know, eight billion individual encounters. We as individuals are part of this, and we certainly have individual connection with God, but that's not where the story begins. The story begins with male and female together. The story does not begin, like that's Genesis 1, male and female, he made them, right? We don't really have, life doesn't begin, procreation doesn't begin, filling the earth doesn't begin until we have a bot, have a family, right? God encounters a family. And this notion that you are with intention saying, this is what we're doing as a family, even as you do this in isolation, right? And not in isolation, in, in solitude. Um, we're doing this together mm -hmm. when you go do this. Yeah, yeah. And that, that is, I, I would say, <clears throat> that is as important as anything else. So much of how, when, when we talk about, uh, you know, this, this is a series on justice, right? And uh, we, we are so, um, we, we've been so culturally um, formed into living as if we are individuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, I kind of know that we're all part of a, you know, a family, a town, a community or whatever. But like, that's not really what's going on in most of our brains. Like, mm. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And even if I do do something, I want to do it because I'm choosing to do it. Yes, I'm going to do it with you, but because I'm choosing to do it with you. Not because like us doing it together is actually more important than what I do by myself. This notion that let us make mankind in our image is as anthropologically solid as gravity. Hmm. As much as we'd like to get away from gravity sometimes, I really don't want to have to take the stairs. I just want to like step outside of my seventh floor window here <laughs> and just get to my car. No, like there's a problem with that. Uh -huh. And in the same way, we cannot get away from the gravitational pull of community. And so when we do things that highlight people's individual activity, like solitude, in the context of this community, it only further empowers its ability to do its work. Mm. And um, 
when I think about wanting to do justice, part of what's difficult, of course, is because I feel like it's me against the world. Mm -hmm. And part of why I think it's me against the world is because I've been programmed to think that it is me against the world, even if there weren't injustice. Because it is me, me, me. That's how we believe we are made. That's how we believe we operate. The reality is that's not actually how our brains work. And so especially when it comes to combating injustice, solitude becomes something not just because of the practices that the individuals make, but because they're practicing them in the awareness that they're doing it in community, that this community becomes that which is God's methodology against injustice. I'm not fighting injustice. We are fighting injustice. We are going to live just lives together. And that's important because as I know, as, as you've emphasized, like, you know, we don't want to have rose-colored glasses about how hard the work of justice is. Like, it's, it, it's not pretty at mm -hmm. times, mm -hmm. right? It takes a lot of work. It's hard. It, it can be brutal at times. And our commitment to doing this kind of work of solitude, what are we paying attention to, in the context of community that you are so, I think, so deftly weaving together by encouraging ones to do it, I think uh, goes no small way in uh, creating space for God's spirit to do in this world what he so longs to do. Mm, that, is, that is so well said. And a marvelous place to end, I think. You know, when we, we say if we, and this includes whether laboring on uh, trafficking issues, serving orphans, working with foster youth, any number of aspects of the world's brokenness, including helping people uh, heal their souls as they take them to Christ as you do, um, we are continually pouring out. Yeah, it is right. the, the essence of it is that life is pouring out from us into others, into broken situations. And so if we are not being poured into, we will very soon run dry. We, we won't continue in this for long. Right. Um, and what you're describing is the, the at, at its essence, in so many ways, it is coming to the Lord with open hands mm -hmm. and, um, and being in a place where we can receive. And it, as you pointed out, sometimes solitude, uh, you know, it, it may be a dramatic experience. We may mm -hmm. feel so filled up. We may have... Uh, a clear vision of something we'd never seen before. Other times it is simply a, a moment away from, mm -hmm. from the, the hurry of life um, being present to God. But in that rhythm, uh, that pattern o over time, it is a, I, I know for myself and, it's, and I know for, for, from you as well, it's a, it is a continual pouring in that God does over time that enables us to pour out. Yes, indeed. There are very few things more hopeful than this truth we've been talking about, that our brains can change. In fact, our brains are always changing. We are not stuck the way we are. So two years from now, or even six months from now, we can be very different people than we are today. We can be more calm, more generous, more attentive, more others-focused, more like Jesus Christ. And of course, it's not easy but so much of this comes down to fairly small choices in our thoughts. Little choices that slowly become habits and in time slowly reshape our brains and ultimately our character. And of course, as Christians, we believe that this work of change and renewal is first of all the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But we also believe that he invites us to participate with him in those little simple thought choices. 
like choosing thanksgiving over complaint or choosing prayer over chewing on worry. And sometimes we can make those choices right in the moment. But at other times, we need to grow our ability to choose thoughts through spiritual disciplines, like times away in solitude or silence or a weekly Sabbath. These things strengthen our capacity to set new habits and to make the thought choices that we really want to make. Ultimately, all of this isn't just about personal change and health. If we are people who care about justice and mercy, this is where all of that starts. This is the fountainhead of justice and mercy. When our hearts and our habits start changing in a healthy direction, we are far more able to give the people we serve and really everyone around us what they most need. You know, they don't just need services and programs. What they need most of all is to encounter people who bear the grace and the calm and tender love of Jesus Christ. That's why we say that vibrant work of justice and mercy always flow from a vibrant soul. Well, as a quick side note as we wrap up, I just mentioned again that Dr. Thompson will be speaking and teaching workshops at the upcoming CAFO 2019 Summit, which is May 8 through 10 uh, at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And we would love for you to join us to explore uh, the things we've been talking about here and many other vital themes for living and loving wisely and well here in this hurting world. You can register at kfo.org. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Medefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit kfo.org.